0: Welcome to Tactical Breakdown. On today's episode, we're talking about video evidence and investigations. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown Podcast on the Islet
1: Network your number one resource for law enforcement training. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin.
0: All right, here we go with another episode of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Really excited to put this episode out there. This is one of the new episodes that we just recorded here early 2022. And uh, just excited to keep these interviews rolling and um, to talk to new people, new experts, and um, and bring in exciting new partners uh, like our new partners with Knot Laboratory. Um, if you don't know about Knot Laboratory, um, they are a forensic engineering and animation firm out of the U.S., but they have a new digital media forensics department that uses state-of-the-art processing of digital evidence to assist law enforcement in creating investigative tools and uh, and putting cases together. And so they can take video evidence like body cameras, surveillance dash dashboard, uh, cell phone, uh, traffic cams, drone footage, even ring doorbells, and put that all together and merge it into some type of point cloud utilizing laser systems to create 3d scanning of crime scene to do real-time simulations and and even branch into creating full vr environments and all of that in order to support law enforcement when it comes to incidents whether it be vehicle crash reconstruction officer involved shootings or anything in between Uh, they have the ability to do that and so when they contacted us about um, about what they were putting together, I thought it was phenomenally interesting. Obviously, um, you know we've had experts on the podcast before, like Dr. Jeff Damelin, um, who has talked about concepts like this in the past. And I was excited to bring somebody from not laboratories on, and um, and I was lucky that they sent me a gentleman by the name of Jason Evans, and Jason is a military and law enforcement veteran, a very 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 smart dude. And and as we dive into this uh, episode here, you're going to hear exactly his background and and why he is uh, very qualified to to speak to these types of things. And um, it was just an exciting conversation that we had. Obviously, self-admittedly, this is not an area that I am comfortable in in speaking with. It is not an area of expertise for me. Um, It is all new and interesting. And so a lot of my questions are somewhat rudimentary. and, And I bring in what little experience I have with video um, from CCTV and other things like that, but uh, just a fascinating discussion with Jason here. And again, um, you know, just trying to, to showcase some of this amazing technology like Not Laboratory has. If you want to check them out, their link to their website, NotLab.com, will be in the description. Uh, make sure to do that and um, just enjoy this episode that I had here with Jason. Hopefully, you'll find this information actionable and relevant to you. Obviously, give more geared towards investigators for this conversation, but without any further ado, let's jump into this uh, episode with Jason and get into it. Here we go. Hey, everyone. Welcome. And uh, with me is Jason Evans with Knot Labs. Uh, he's a project engineer with them. And has quite a bit of uh, operational experience as well in uh, in the law enforcement and military space, I believe. So, Jason, why don't you just give us a bit about your background and uh, we'll jump into this conversation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I work for Not Laboratories currently as a project engineer, but I started my um, adult working experiences in the Navy, specifically on submarines as a nuclear electrician enlisted. Um I was stationed out in Pearl Harbor uh, on a fast tech submarine, the USS Columbia for um, f- about five years and worked as an electrician and numerous other things there. And then worked, moved into the shipyard there and worked kind of as a technical engineer at the shipyard before I ended up separating out. And um, while I was in, I got my uh, bachelor's degree in nuclear engineering and then got out and got into law enforcement and just kind of was... I wanted to always try it, do it, and was a cop in, here in Grand Junction, Colorado for seven years. I was a firearms instructor. I was uh, also on the SWAT team for a short period of time. And then I also was a school resource officer, worked with the community resource unit, did patrol for a couple of years as well, um, and did that. And then in the last year, I got connected with my, the CEO of the company who's a personal friend of mine, and and we both saw an opportunity for my experience, both in engineering and law enforcement, to move into forensic engineering with Not Laboratory, specifically with video integration um, and all the engineering that could be done with that and um, have been doing that for the last year. So I've really enjoyed that and um, have a big passion for um, educating law enforcement in the capabilities that they have already um, and what we're already doing in the engineering field, uh, specifically in forensic engineering, and so they can be as successful as possible.
0: What I want to start off with here, Jason, and, and I love your background in this because I think an operational background when it comes to, especially when it comes to things like investigations, is is critical, right? I mean, we, we understand there are phenomenal investigators that come from the academics side of things. Um, that help develop and, and guide the way that we actually, and the tools that we have. But when it comes down to it, having that operational experience and, and having, you know, boots on the ground gives a little bit of a different look. And I think that's probably why i not brought you in, would be my guess. Um, but the conversation today is going to s- kind of stem around that video and digital evidence, um, and like you had said, I think there's so much stuff out there right now that officers don't even know is available to them, um, that agencies don't know is available, but also stuff that they're probably using on a day-to-day that they're not taking full advantage of. And so where where do you want to start that conversation? What component of video and digital evidence is being overlooked by officers and agencies around the world?
1: Um, the biggest one I'm seeing right now is just the prevalence of just videos either cell phones doorbell cameras security cameras and just like gas station um a lot of times will cops will be like oh it didn't catch exactly what happened well that is still pertinent because a lot of times when you combine all those videos together, it could be across the street, you know, catching just an overall view of it to, you know, a cell phone camera or even a body camera. And what we see a lot when in the engineering side of it is we're able to integrate all those videos together and build a total picture of what's going on. And I know as a patrol officer, I was go down to the gas station. Oh, we didn't catch the the shoplift, but There could be just a nuance of like timing and all this other stuff that collecting a plethora of that information in today's day and age, especially with how readily accessible it is and real time crime centers are becoming like the thing in law enforcement and combining those two, those two thought processes of collecting it at the time and also post event. Is kind of the biggest thing that I see getting overlooked on uh, on all those things. Um, the other tool that I see that law enforcement is actively underutilizing is laser scanners. Um, our department had one. We had a FARO scanner. Um, I know a lot of guys on the East Coast have Leica scanners. Um, a lot right now, law enforcement are just using them as a fancy way of scene uh, documentation. And those tools, those laser scans, the, the point clouds they generate that we like to look at when we're done um, have so much data in them that can be utilized for further analysis and further generation of being able to find out so much more than I think law enforcement realizes that that tool can do.
0: Mm. I want to go back to what you talked about there with real, these real-time centers. Um, and can you break that concept down a little bit for us and and kind of explain what those are and and what they do?
1: Yeah. Real-time crime centers, um, the sheriff's department and the PD, police department in my local agency were starting to generate one and I know Denver PD and other people do a lot of larger agencies are doing this and um I know I've got family connections back in England and they do a lot of re- essentially real time crime centers um actively in you know those those location and essentially it's people watching um community partners that have given given them access to their security cameras you know even now it's doorbell cameras and they're actively just looking at those things or, Hey, we've got an alert that a crime occurred. Let's go back and see what's going on in that area. And essentially it's putting a cop on a camera to help the cops that are, have their boots on the ground to address those issues. What I saw in our department was, is that they weren't retaining a lot of that information because it was only being used in real time. And that, that information, that data, you know, even if you didn't catch the bad guy, it can be used. You know, to, to piece those things together in the long term. And those real time crime centers, like I said, are been used in I know England specifically a lot and help those those patrol officers on the ground to you know apprehend criminals, you know address issues, you know build build those cases. And it's a concept that in the United States that is now just getting traction and is realizing there's a real um, benefit as the overall surveillance um, tools are increasing uh, around the country.
0: You just brought something really interesting. And as the first thing that kind of just popped in my head was you said they're typically not, you know, recording that information, right? So if they're watching it real time, it's not necessarily being recorded and retained. That I for the first thing that I thought of was, well, that may be an issue if there ends up being some type of action on with the officers on the ground. Um, whether it's a use of force incident or something that mm-hmm. happens. Um, and now the information that they were being fed from this real-time crime center directly influenced their decision-making on the ground. And now you don't have that component of that evidence, which is why the officer made that decision or part of that decision in the first place. Is that a consideration that's come up in this discussion?
1: Yeah. And, and a lot of times it's not necessarily an operator's issue in that, that thing. It, it's a limitation of the software is by by viewing it real time, it it's not it, the software is not able to record at the same time because now you're actively watching it. And that's the problem you're going to run into is and and I think those are one of the biggest things we've seen is is that data is lost because they're they're using it like they're trying to. that's what a real-time de- uh, crime center is meant for. But the active monitoring has limitations a lot of times through software or hardware to be able to retain that that data and effectively store it. And that's the other problem you're running into is this videos are so mass, you know, those, v- these video files are so massive is a retention requirements, you know, is, is a physical limitation or data, you know, from, or even a monetary is how long do you store this stuff? How, how long do you maintain it? Where do you keep it? You know, cloud storage can be a major limitation for, for a lot of people, um, in law enforcement and, and just the public sector in general, because it's, it's a monetary limitation.
0: So the technology on this then wouldn't be like a typical CCTV system that you would see in a, a retailer, where an a loss prevention officer would be able to real time um, watch on a camera what's happening, while that's simultaneously being recorded onto the DVR system. This is something completely separate from that. So if anybody's kind of listening to this and they're they're kind of asking why, well. If, like, for example, right now, we're doing this live. We, you and I are talking live, yet it's also being recorded. So I guess the question would be, what is it? Why is there a restriction on the system to not be able to do that? Could Are we moving to a point with these real-time crime centers where you could potentially isolate a... So say, for example, you're utilizing a, a certain feed for something, for information, where you could isolate in on that feed and record that feed specifically so you're not worrying about the just immense amount of data from trying to record everything at once
1: yeah and i think the software is getting better because like i said as there's a need these service providers whoever they are are going to you know solve these issues it was just those are the the initial limitations we've seen um i've seen in on some other cases of like accident recording um that a lot of these softwares are great for me you know recording this information but as soon as like there's whatever is happening behind the, the the ones and zeros in the programming is when there's active monitoring going on to sometimes that data can be lost or it is not retained in the same same manner or you know is not and that's just something that needs to be addressed and be thought of when you're do when you're setting up your real time crime center is are we recording this data like you said for evidentiary especially if it results in the use of force or any sort of crime that's being committed because if you know, you were alerted to it via video. Someone's going to, you know, some attorney's going to ask, Hey, let's look at that video. So you're going to want to retain that. And also vice versa down the line, if it does result in a major use of force, like a critical incident, uh, officer involved shooting, or a major use of force, um, you're going to want to retain that and make sure you keep that for, and it's going to be as useful for you as for analysis as possible.
0: With the systems that currently exist, does there is there a consideration for when the systems are being set up that they have to be set up correctly so that something as simple as date and time is correct so that it doesn't cause issues on the back end when we actually go to use them for these investigative purposes or to to put these entire files together?
1: It's not the end-all be-all, but it is important to make sure those things are correct. I, the biggest thing I can see is if someone is setting up a real-time current center, reach out to an, an agency that's already work through these problems. You know, they've already had these headaches. They've already had these major issues. Um, the other thing is if you do have a problem and you have some reason that you cannot immediately correct it is noting it. Um, that way, if you do have a critical incident going, Hey, we're set up to Greenwich Mean Time or Zulu time or something like that. And, We just need to correct for those issues to make sure when you get into court, they're like, Hey, this is timestamp for so-and-so. And And it's like, okay, cool. We op it's the system operates off Zulu. Okay, cool. Um, Then we just auto-correct it. And then you can just, you know, show, show that to attorneys, the jury command staff, or whoever needs to know that stuff. So they, they don't freak out about those, those issues.
0: Mm -hmm. The fascinating thing when, when we spoke the first time um, offline, the the this concept of being able to bring in evidence from so many different places and end up creating a 3d map almost or version of events that's happening um it it was something kind of almost like out of a, a movie or a tv show when you were explaining it to me right like like um those old episodes of csi when they first came out where they're like and it was and you're sitting there you're like That's not real. (laughs) Like You can't do that. We're getting to the point with technology now that that's actually becoming more of reality. This digital mapping of a 3D environment utilizing multiple camera angles and and different things so that you can pull in not just CCTV video, but like you had said, like ring doorbells or dash cams or, uh, you know, body worn cameras, which are becoming more and more and more prevalent for law enforcement around the world. Um, let's, I want to start that conversation about how, how did that even start this idea of starting to compile and bring together all of these, um, evidentiary components and building out kind of a 3d model of a, of a scene. Um, and when was that, when was that actually realized as a concept?
1: Well, not laboratory has been doing 3d modeling for accident reconstruction, um, in the civil realm, um, you know, big rig crashes, car crashes and all that stuff for over 20 years now um richardson who was the previous owner of our company um really brought in civil litigation uh back in the early 2000s early 1990s um sorry late 1990s um when he on his own accord reconstructed the princess diana crash um since then technology has drastically improved and we use laser scanners um almost on every single case we have and through that application we saw that it was like hey Law enforcement is actively using all these video cameras uh, through videogrammetry and uh, and just photogrammetry. We can integrate all that information into this 3D point cloud uh, point cloud that's taken generated by these laser scanners and create a accurate engineering uh, 3D model of everything that happens. And we've done that on a few other cases, and that's what really prompted us to. Why doesn't law enforcement know about this? They're already utilizing all the tools and the bits and pieces of this why aren't why don't they know about this end product that we can generate from our engineering experience? and what we ultimately learned is just law enforcement doesn't know that the like, their these tools have this capability.
0: yeah, one of the interesting things that came up in discussion prior to this interview was the idea that in a let's use an officer involved shooting because i guess that would be kind of one Mm. of the preeminent types of investigations an officer goes through they have their version of events that was done through either dictation or their reporting of the incident you have eyewitness accounts and then you have certain um you'll have what will happen is you'll end up looking at a body cam video and a dash cam video and a maybe a a cell phone video or whatever but they're all viewed in isolation, mm. um, and I think the most fascinating thing that we talked about was the fact that when and, and just like anything, I've had a, I've had some fantastic conversations with um, you know Jamie Borden and Dr. Paul Taylor and other uh, uh, guys like Jeff Damelin and and people that are just uh, experts when it comes to video and um, the evidentiary component of it and talking about what how we as human beings can't perceive what is actually being shown in a video. It's two, it's two different worlds almost. Um, What I loved about our conversation was the fact that, you know, an officer may have thought that, well, when I was going through the scenario, um, I was actually ducked behind uh, the A-frame or whatever, when I fired my first two rounds. um, And all of the independent videos will maybe either um, show, not well they won't show anything or they won't disprove that that version of events but through the 3d mapping um going through with the the laser scan of the scene and then compiling all the video evidence including that officer's body camera you can actually show that they were actually in this very specific spot when each of these uh actions occurred and you can walk it back and almost show exactly what happened by putting all of the components together um which may either prove the officer's statement of events or it may disprove it. Um, and that's not to say the officer was, was wrong in, in whatever they were doing, but just that the human error, obviously component of, of memory, how big of a breakthrough is that for law enforcement it, it, the ability to be able to say, Hey, listen, you know, we may not need to go right to the officer um, from what we know about mental health and and trauma and all of these things. We may not need them yet. To tell us what happened, we can literally show you exactly what happened without the need to involve humans, which is a source of error.
1: Yeah, that's what's really amazing with this video evidence combined with the point cloud and the combination of the two. You're able to track where the, the position of the camera is. So, I, if the camera is on a, a body cam, you can therefore track the officer's movement through that 3D space and or any object. We can watch vehicles and and a lot of times that's that's a big discussion is how far was the officer away from the vehicle or the the suspect um how far where was the officer relative location to the surrounding objects around him and all that that information is in that video and so but you can't just like the limitations with the video and perception until you place it in a point cloud, can you, can you get that 3d model and, and ultimately see all that other stuff? And the amazing part is once you've combined all that information that you have, maybe three or four body cams, um, a stationary camera, like a dash cam or a surveillance video, once you've created that 3d model, you can actually move it around and place it because the limitation, a lot of times with body cams, that everyone's concerned of is most officers are carrying them on their chest or shoulder lapel, but it has a limited mobility that the human head doesn't have. Once you've created a 3D model, you could essentially move it up into the perception of the officer and see it from the officer's point of point of view. And now you're always going to be limited because you don't know if the officer moved his head or adjust that and and everything. But you could at least generate a better view of what actually occurred than what's limited to the body cam. And that's what's amazing from it. And we've talked a lot with Force science and had some discussions with them. But ultimately, we want to let law enforcement also know is this data is here. We can see it. Um we can, we can generate it, we can get it. And it it may, like you said, help an investigation, but also may go, well, why did the officer perceive this? And when his actual distance was there and that can be generally addressed a lot of time with the human um, interaction experts to like for science or those, those experts as well to kind of explain the perception and the limitations that the human body has when it comes to those things, when it goes through stress and those stressful traumatic experiences.
0: I think the biggest I think the biggest thing that kind of shook a lot of officers was when they said, Hey, everyone's going to be wearing body warm cameras now. Um, And they're like, okay, great. Like now, right? Like we don't have enough. Okay, sure. Whatever. But it it was kind of one of those things um, I think they're being more and more accepted by officers because I think they're starting to realize that, Hey, actually having audio video of an incident um, more often than not actually saves your ass Mm -hmm. than, than it does, Show something that you did wrong, and I think this is kind of the next step up from that, where overall you get a better picture holistically of what happened in a in a scenario than you would if you only have a a single point of reference, which would be a single body cam or a single cell phone video. Um, And and I think that this, and this is just my own uh, belief on this, but I think that this could potentially Be something that officers and agencies should be buying into kind of hook line and sinker because it becomes now a tool for them especially when it comes to use of force incidents or or anything where they can say listen I, I understand what it looks like I understand the overall optics of it and the perception based off of the you know the cell phone video that went up on YouTube that the media got a hold of but here is the clear evidence that is it's not disputable. It's not, it's not a human's recollection of what happened. It is literally, this is, this is what happened. And any, anybody can break that apart. You can hand that to a prosecutor or to events attorney or to a civil litigator. And everybody is going to draw the same conclusion because it's not something that's disputable. Um, And I think that is super powerful in the hands of, of law enforcement agencies to help protect our officers when these unfortunate situations do happen.
1: No, absolutely. Like this is hard evidence. There's nothing questionable. There's no perception it, it especially in the time of transparency that the overall public across the world is asking for. This is as tr- transparent as you can get. This is this is physics. This is hard, hard engineering at, at its finest, where, where we're extrapolating information from hard objects and providing that information to the department, the public, and anybody who want, needs that information, and 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 then that information can be used to improve and make the, the investigation as accurate as possible. And ultimately, that's what every cop wants. I mean, um, every cop wants to provide the most accurate and best investigation to the public that they possibly can can give. And this is just this data is out there. Every most departments are collecting it already through, you know, documentation of the scene. Um, like I said, we're seeing more and more departments have these laser scanners, and they're already using them. It's just they don't realize that this data is there, you know, and can be combined with the videos to give that real-time, you know, information, you know, from the incident. And you're not trying to figure out how to combine this information. It's it, it's a process that's already established. It's already being done. It's already being brought into evidence in civil litigation. Um, we just need to make sure law enforcement is aware of that, and they they figure out the best ways of applying it and getting it in for their investigations and giving it to prosecutors or um, giving it to the civil litigators that need to have it and um, make sure they're aware that this information is there available to, to the officers, to the public and to the overall community um, when these incidents do happen.
0: I want to bring up uh, some, a very recent event that happened because I think it got mm-hmm. international uh, spotlight and that is the, evidence that was submitted and then the counter evidence during the written uh, house trial um mm. so and and i bring it up um not just to say that uh, one of the uh dr john black who actually testified on behalf of the defense is one of our, our advisory board members here at ILET but he i mean it, it he brought a very interesting concept up for a lot of people that maybe had never heard of um, what happened for which is one which is how the prosecution came to have their evidence that was that they used um and then how how easily it was to to basically to to shine a light on that saying hey that's not necessarily correct um, because stuff was actually altered and adjusted um, with the video evidence um what are your thoughts on what happened during that uh, that trial there
1: well it's Technology is advancing faster than our criminal justice systems really designed to um to operate. Like there there is so much technology out there, and until you get, bring this stuff into you know attempt to bring this stuff into court and get ju- it in front of the judges, so we have case law on how to use it, and that's the reality. Is we need to like just like body cams, cops are inherently risk adverse and, you know, want to make sure things are as solid as possible before they they bring that technology in. And that's what this is, is like, as you combine all this stuff and in the Ritterhouse case, it was the first time we saw in the public's eye that this type of technology was brought in as evidence. And also how easily, like I said, you can, there's so much software and equipment out there to enhance, you know, improve the overall video and do all those things and make things more clear. You can slow things down to the millisecond and that's not how the human body operates. Mm-hmm. And it's not how the perception operates. It's not how we, we perceive information as a human object. You know, the, we, it's, it's readily apparent and it is pretty, everyone knows that there's a, approximately a 1.5 perception, you know, capability of the human body. See a threat go oh that's a threat and then i need to do something about it right it's just like driving a car we all know about a car hey the car in front of me stopping i need to realize i need to step on the brake pedal and it takes that time so that's the thing about video is that we're able to sit down and go through it frame by frame by frame for hours on end you know a 20 second event and a lot of officers are dealing with these events in, in short periods of time like that where there's shootings that do occur in a short period of time and then People come out afterwards, and it's it, look at this body cam, and they're literally going frame by frame by frame. And law enforcement needs to be aware that that's going to happen. Prosecutors need to be, and vice versa, defense attorneys in the Ritterhouse case need to be aware of that as well. And how do we address that? How do we bring in the correct experts to address that that process and make sure it's it's appropriate? And it's and we're not like coming across and looking at this this incident after the fact and going, oh. He, look at all this time at, that occurred and, and how do you address those things? And and people like for science and the other experts out there that address these issues um, from the human response times and, and all that, that stuff um, already have that information out there. They already know that stuff. It's just applying it to the video technology that's now readily available and and how these insanely smart people are you know doing these amazing things with video and you know what are you how are you processing that information and how you're using it or and is it is it appropriately being used in court
0: that's an interesting thought obviously um as you know we work intimately with with Force science Mm -hmm. um and their teams there and uh and the team over at vertra and and things like that and so these are conversations we've had so many times um and it actually kind of it hit a a little bit of a fever pitch. Um, and I can't remember when it was earlier this year. Um, there was the officer involved shooting incident in, I believe it was Chicago um, where there was a young man running, um, ran behind a fence, ditched his gun was shot um, and it came back and it was in the news and everyone's, well, they shot an unarmed person. He was throwing his gun away. Um, and literally, cause that's kind of where it all started. And now you have, but then you speak to experts on the subject. Um, And we all know that with perception time, how our brains work, how once we get information into our eyes, how long that takes to get to our brains and then how long that process starts before I make a uh, first action on that information and all of these things. And essentially, you, you end up showing that human performance wise, those officers functioned within the parameters of what any other human being on the planet would do um Mm -hmm. and it's it's funny because you had the news media and everybody else watching that video saying well no like you had said frame by frame you can see here in this frame he had the gun you can see in the next frame he didn't have the gun and you can see in the next frame that the officer shot him and you go well that's great but that all happened in two tenths of a second um and there you know that that's just there's no way that officer could have stopped that action there's Mm -hmm. there's There is zero way in the world. Um, And I can't remember what it was, um, what the actual example was, but if you take, um, I think they were using Usain Bolt as an example. Um, Fastest man ever in the history (laughs) of the planet. Um, And they said that his fastest reaction time ever to a known stimulus was like three tenths of a second. So, Gun goes bang three tenths of a second and he takes off and now that's a primed response to a known action uh, a known thing that's going to happen he knows that gun's gonna go off so he's primed and ready for that um, if you take an act or if you take um, if you take him and you do anything else where he's not primed for it it's like six tenths of a second or eight tenths of a second um, and now you're expecting an officer to react in a ch- Shorter time than the fastest person on the, the best to ever do it. You expect the officer to be faster than them and better in also incorporating, you know, it's the middle of the night, it's cold. it's dark. They know this person is potentially a threat and all of the thousand different variables that are happening. um, It's just, it was, it's just almost comical to me that that's still a, a reality that we haven't yet been able to give this information to the public that hey listen th- this is this is the s- human science these are the performance factors of human beings and i think where we do a disservice to ourselves is we try to justify it based off of what we as officers or military members or first responders experience instead of contextualizing it to the audience and saying let me let me explain this to you in your in terms that you'll understand right whether that's in a sports analogy or utilizing something that they do on a day to day so that they actually understand and contextualize the information that's given to them, that they agree to the actual um, standard or they agree to the concept. And then once they agree to the concept, now I can take that concept and overlay it onto situations and they'll be like, Oh, okay. I, I understand that now. I, I feel like we're missing that step, that contextualization step when it comes, especially to video review, because you see it all the time in the news. It's like, well, this, this happened, this happened, this happened. Well, yes, but you're missing 95% of the information. You're, you're going off of one isolated component. Um, and, um, I'll get off my soapbox, but I feel like that is something that's just a a massive issue right now.
1: No, it's, it's a huge issue. And and the funny part about that video is, we took a drastic interest in that because it was a it was caught from multiple angles and just through some basic research we did at not laboratory on our own. um, Three of the major videos that were used by major media um, installations or agencies um, had slowed that down like a lot and, and put it out to the public that way. And law enforcement needs to be aware that that that's going to happen. And how do you, how do you get on the forefront of that? And, and like you said, address that stuff, um, to the public. So they're, they're not just seeing it from, um, you know, a, a contextualized or modified video. And it's very easy to do that. I mean, you, you know, most people, if you have the right software to slow down a video and cops are real good, are getting better about releasing that video. Um, but they're not necessarily addressing that stuff on the front end. And I understand why, because, you know, in the short period of time, in the last couple of years, uh, an officer involved shooting the the law enforcement agencies were giving a a certain amount of time to before they address the public about you know what what had happened and you throw in body cameras in there and that, that that information's out there and then you also cell phone cameras and all this other stuff and that stuff's hidden in the media before law enforcement's collected themselves and don't want to affect the integrity in the investigation but also that transparency question is how do you address that issue as well and i think the human factor aspect of it, you know, what the officer knew at that time, you know, the Graham versus Connor stuff, um, in the United States is, and that, that Supreme court ruling is what did that officer know at the time? What, what did the officer see and perceive, you know, and, and what, what, what are they interpreting, you know, and, and what threat did they have? Um, I'm a big proponent of the video, but I also am a huge, I I recognize from my law enforcement experience, Experience the limitation of the video. And I think that's, a, it, this is that two prong approach. Of course, I'm a huge proponent of, of extrapolating as much data from the video, but I want to give that information to the correct experts that can address either those concerns or the things that support what the, what the officer saw or it didn't see in that incident. And it, we've also seen this in other videos. I mean, there's a video on the internet of, um, Traffic stop, and then in the it saw the media was this officer pulled the individual out of the driver's seat, and then the next thing you see in the frame rate is the officer punching the guy in the face. Well, until you take that that video actually was collecting more frame rates than the playback system was actually showing. So when you actually got to the raw video and looked at each individual frame rate, that the, the driver had actually struck the officer in the face, and the officer was, was responding to, with an appropriate use of force for getting struck in the face, you know, to that driver. But when it was seen on the, the playback software, and these are the things that law enforcement agents need, need to be aware of is that that raw video data may actually be processing more information than the playback that uh, software is actually providing you. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: until you get into that, those nuances and, and you have those, those people that have that knowledge and that capability of reviewing that stuff, will you be able to see those things and make sure that stuff's there and, and it's no fault to anybody on their own. I don't think anybody's doing this stuff. It's, it's just, you know, these are limitations of technology. And like, again, why you can't lean on this, tech, this video by itself or any one thing, you need to make sure you look at the totality of the situation. Like you said, the human aspect and our human response to these things. And also understand that, that this technology has its limitations and needs to be dissected appropriately by the right people to make sure we, we get all that information out of there.
0: Yeah, that's a great point about the frame rates on playback. Um, that's something that definitely I've, I've heard of multiple times where, um, you know, it's like, well, I was, they took the video and they watched it on their VLC player on their computer and, and whatever. And you're like, well, that's great, but you missed 50% of the information. <laughs> like, but you, but here's the thing, just like anything, right. You don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. So if no one's shown you or you've never been exposed to that, like, Hey, this could be different. Um, you're not going to know to look for it. Right. Um, I do want to circle back quickly to Mm -hmm. um, the idea of agencies putting out video footage Mm -hmm. um, of an incident when it happens. It's kind of like one of those double-sided, like double-edged swords, right. Where you're, you're right. The officer of the agency has to, wants to put it out for transparency, but I think there also is a, big issue with agencies just throwing the video out there saying, Hey, here's the video. Look, we're being transparent without giving context behind the, the, what the actual version of events that actually happened Um, where they don't have an expert and and it's not their fault, but most um, agencies don't have a on staff use of force expert that specializes in video evidence, right? They don't have a, they don't have a Dr. Bill Lewinsky on, on speed dial for him to break down everything that happens. Um what'll happen though is they'll release this without saying, like, here is what happened in this entire situation, and give context to it. They'll just say, here's the video. Um, and then what happens is again, the public gets hold of the video without any context, and they go, Look, see, he did exactly what we said. He did something wrong. And when when in reality, they're missing again, they're they're actually missing the context behind the the interaction and the engagement. Um I think that's a big issue, too. And I've seen that happen multiple times and I'm sure you have as well, where an agency hastily puts something out and then it ends up being as a detriment to that agency or to that officer in the court of public opinion. Um, And of course, we know and we know this has happened multiple times in mainstream media over the last year and a half, where once something gets to court. It doesn't, at that point, it doesn't matter anymore because public opinion has been set in stone almost as to what they believe the version of events showed, what the evidence that they had. It doesn't matter that it gets to court and, you know, every and all of the information and evidence comes out and the officer gets exonerated or whatever it is. Um, and the public goes, "Oh, it was just a miscarriage of justice, or they got off because of X, Y, or Z, or the judge is biased, or the prosecutor's biased, or X, whatever excuse they want to make, because their mind was made up from that initial evidence that was released at the time." Um, and I think that's a, I think that's a concern, man. I, I, I really do.
1: It's that fine line of controlling the narrative, and um, you, you, we've seen this in different agencies across the United States. Is that is both sides of the spectrum it's the oversharing and the uh, undersharing and um the other thing is is that is the legislature in each individual location set up to address these issues we saw this in north carolina Um, that was a huge point back in this uh earlier in the summer there was a shooting down there and the legislature said that while this is an open investigation this stuff won't be released and um that was just really interesting that the legislature there was so restrictive, you know, but but it supported the law enforcement agencies, even though there's a demand for just transparency in those situations and vice versa. It's it's I think every department needs to decide what they're going to do and make sure they do it right from the from the get go. And um, if you're going to release, you know, that information, then you get, need to make sure you do it in its totality. And understand that somebody is going to take issue with it, you know, take that that video and maybe change the narrative in some form of fashion, but make sure that you have your the, the narrative and you have all the information that's readily available to you when you release it and it's accurate as possible because you don't want to look like you have egg on your face when you release it and something comes out later that something was different or anything like that, and vice versa. Make sure you're also not um you're partnering with your district attorney's office or the attorneys that are going to be um, investigating this case or prosecuting this case, and that they they agree with, um, either releasing that information or not, you know, and and that that's the biggest thing is that, um, and if there's something, get an expert involved early, you know, and, and that's the biggest, us as publics, um, need to understand is that that for that transparency, you know, you may need to reach out to, you know, a Bill Lewinsky or the, an individual like that to, you know, address some of these issues on the front end. So that way um, it does not become a problem down the back end um, and you're trying to play catch up on what, what's going on with this situation.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's so many experts out there. Um, I'm fortunate, obviously, especially with Islet that we're connected to to most of them. Um, and so if, uh, again, if you're listening to this and, and you're part of an agency that doesn't have a policy or procedure in place for this type of stuff, um, if you have to, I mean, obviously reach out to force science, um, reach out to the team at uh, AFI, uh, the association of force investigators. They're awesome. Um, or you can reach out to, to Islet. you can reach out to me directly as well. Um, and I'll just put you in touch with whoever, whoever I can. Um, because I think that's a critical component and that's what we want agencies to start doing is, you know, I mean, Law enforcement as a whole is is a reactive culture, right? We don't make changes until we need to make changes. Um, and I think what everybody, and especially with like what Not is doing, is you're saying, hey, listen, being reactive is great. And sure, we'll come in and, and do this after the fact. But let's start being preemptive with the, the policies and procedures that we're putting in place so that if and when this, not, not if it happens, but when it happens, um, you're prepared for it and you're you're set up for success when it does. That being said, I want to start talking about what you believe are, are those steps that agencies could be making right now when it comes to best practices for video and digital evidence. Um, what are things that you guys are seeing right now that they're not doing and could be a very simple change to make it more successful or, or make it easier for them in the future to implement um, programs like yours?
1: The biggest thing is, in my opinion, is getting your hands on a laser scanner. If if you're an agency that's small, uh, there is some sort of state or federal agency that has this equipment and scan your scene with a laser scanner, whether it's a, a ferro scanner or like a Leica scanner, it does it. I, from an engineering span, I don't care. Cause I, I use the end product, but scan it at the time the incident happened over scan. Don't just worry about the immediate incident because you may come across a security camera that ha- that's half a block down that has pertinent information. And if you laser scan all the way out to that, we can integrate that video and, and, give you more information from that. The other thing is, is the piece of technology we have from forensic engineering and, and I'm all about the video and the laser scanner, but EDRs. So an EDR is, they call it a black box on a car, but it's an event data recorder. If you're not downloading the event data recorders, when there's a a vehicle been involved, whether it's the suspect, uh, a victim, you know, your patrol vehicles or any of this stuff, then you're losing out on data. Um, There's a ton of data that's inside these vehicles that can be used for an investigation to help um, you know, com- combine all that information that you may not be aware of, and we, we've run into that a lot with our experience in accident reconstruction is that there doesn't need to be an airbag deployment a lot of time in these newer vehicles for that data to be on there. So that's where we come from an engineering standpoint is is we try to advise law enforcement agencies or anybody, um, you know, unions, anybody, uh, civil attorney that's helping out a law, a law enforcement officer that in, in these cases is collect as much as that data on the front end, because as soon as it's gone, you're never going to get it back, mm-hmm. And, and that's the proactive thing. Take, if you think you took enough pictures to take another hundred more, you know, it's, 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 it, it's, it's, I mean, that's just good cop work. Most cops are doing that anyways, with over documentation, the best photographs I've seen are by, you know, cops that are doing that stuff and everything, but do that stuff immediately, you know, because a lot of times right now is, you're, if you get in a shooting, you have to render aid, right? That's the expectation you should be doing those things, but make sure you document all that stuff. Where were shell casings, you know, even if you snap a picture, you know, and give a general location, do that stuff. Everybody has a cell phone on you. And if you don't, you have you should have a digital camera, but let's be honest, most cops have a digital camera, document the crap out of the scene before everything, before the fire department paramedics get in there as well and start, you know, you know potentially t- contaminating that scene and, and changing things, things get moved you know, involuntary and, and document. And that can be the very first beat cop that shows up there all the way to a evidence collection team, you know, on all this other stuff, but really you're going to know where that location is. You're going to, you're going to know where all that stuff is, you know, footprints start drying out, you know, stuff gets disturbed as more people get there, more cops get there. Um, document, document, document. It, it may not be important at that time in the investigation, but this could be a, a, important down the line, um, as you know, maybe this gets to civil litigation and all this other stuff. And if you don't, and it, that's the biggest thing I've seen going back and from an engineering standpoint, it's like, man, it would be really nice to have some more pictures of this, you know, where, where was, where was this blood pool and relative to, you know, the shooting victim at the time before he got gurneyed up and take, And, and and is this actual evidence or is it contamination? And that that's my biggest thing is that laser scan the scene over document with photographs. And then if you have a drone, if you have all that stuff, fly that over as well. So that way, you know, where all those, those vehicles were located. um, All those things are located where the building was located and do that stuff and, and you don't need to have a forty thousand dollar drone to do that stuff. We 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 utilize one that's two thousand dollars for our engineering firm and it does everything we need it to do and it helps us actually generate point cloud from a drone and and that's something we can advise law enforcement agencies on how to do that or how to get the training to do that and effectively use that stuff. So
0: yeah it's super interest the, the technology behind it is fascinating. Um I have a uh, completely unrelated, but I guess somewhat related. I have a one of my close friends is a, a GRS technician, um, and uh, he 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 broke. He tried to break down for me one time of how just how they get and, and compile all their information, when, especially when they're doing like they're scanning mountain ranges and all these different types of things. And it's just it kind of. He's like, "Yeah, we take like eighty-seven million data points," and I'm like, "You take how many data points?" <laughs> like. I'm like, all right, I'm out. Like, that's a that's an engineer thing. Like, leave me alone. Like, just point me in a direction and tell me where to walk. I'm that kind of person. Um, it's 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 fascinating to me though that like you had said, there's there's technology out there that's readily available that agencies aren't taking advantage of. Um, like you had said, if you're a smaller agency, know who your points of contact are in your region, in your state, or any even at a federal level if they have uh, if they have a if they have a, a a presence in your area um, because chances are that they have the, the, they have that in some way, shape or form that they can lend out to you or so you can use it. Um, The other thing that I did want to bring up because you had mentioned it about officers taking videos with their, and photos with their cell phone Um, was interesting. I did a, I did a a presentation on our last summit with uh, with Laura scary. Laura's a uh, she is a practicing attorney. She specializes in officer uh, use of force cases Um, and as a staff instructor for Force science, we had a very long discussion on, um, kind of best evidence rules. Um, and for officers, um, just being careful when they do take photos or videos on their cell phone, what to do with that evidence, um, and what not to do with that evidence. Um, (laughs) because you can put yourself into a lot of hot water, especially in civil litigation. Um, when it comes to evidence on your phone. Um, And so if you're taking photos on your phone, converting those, downloading those and getting them off of your phone and having documented hard evidence um, that serves as best evidence versus it being on your personal cell phone, because if those photos are retained on your cell phone, um, then it's very easy for somebody to get a subpoena and pretty much everything on your phone then becomes fair game at that point. So you got to watch out for that. Also, um with deletion or, and this conversation that we had was focused around the deletion or removal of evidence um and you know there is um something called negative inference which is a civil lie uh, civil litigation mm-hmm. component um which basically unlike a criminal trial where if the evidence doesn't exist it doesn't exist and the jury can't make any inference on that if there's nothing there um in a civil litigation um if the one opposing side can prove that the other side deleted, removed, or in some way tampered with evidence, um, the jury is able to take a negative inference and say, well, they only did that because it proved them guilty. So I'm going to take that and and put that into my decision. And so um, that is a very 10,000 foot view of the entire <laughs> topic. Um, but uh, and if you have anything to add, please do. But I think that's just um, if you are if you're an officer or you're an agency and your officer either carries a duty cell phone or they have their own personal cell phones on them, that you need to have a policy and procedure that has been vetted through with your in-house legal team. So that if you do use your phones to take uh, any type of evidence that you have a policy and procedure built around that. So you're not opening yourself up to any civil or criminal liability. Um, That's my, just my quick uh, PSA on that. (laughs) But um, I don't know if you have anything to add on that point.
1: No. Yeah. I mean, if your departments, you shouldn't use your personal cell phone for work. I mean, plain and simple. Um, it, it that's, that's, uh, from my cop work and everything and vice versa though. Like, let's be honest. If you're in a shooting, um, And you, the only thing you have is your personal cell phone and there's something that important that you're going to book for evidence. Just plan on losing your cell phone from here on out. It's going to get downloaded. It's going to be booked in evidence and that's going to be the end of it. And talk to your union, talk to your, your attorney. If there's going to be stuff on that phone that that you're going to have to address, you're going to have to address it, you know, and, and it's just something to be aware of. and, and that's, that's something, I mean, of course I would advise you, I'm, I'm talking from the evidence documentation about document as you can always use a department issued phone or something like that. If you, if you can at the behest and everything, and, and be aware, you know, that cell phone, as soon as it, I mean, if you're already using it for work, you better be aware of what you're using it for um, and be aware of your cell phone policy and, and whatnot, but, and what's on it. But it's that, that I'm just saying is, is in bigger agencies we've run across is that, Right, and I'm, what I'm trying to tell that the, those people right now is collect evidence, um, and vice versa. If you're a small agency and you don't have a laser scanner, and you need to get a hold of the feds or a state level agency, go back and scan it. Even if it's a couple of days later, even if it's a month later, because it's way better to collect that stuff on the front end and have it, even if it's not at the time of the scene. Of course, that's the best time to do it, but go back and collect it. That's the biggest thing I can tell you. I've talked to a lot of rural sheriff's departments who are like we don't have that kind of money. I was like, I guarantee you there's a state level law enforcement agency or federal level law enforcement agency that has access to that tool, get a request and have them go scan it for you. And then just give it to you. Look at an evidence and then you have it if you need it. And if you don't need it, there you go. But we can, we can, retro, we can retroactively build that scene. Even if it's after the fact, if you did a good job documenting it at that time,
0: would there be a Case in which um, there would be a private company, non-law enforcement base, that would have similar technology um, that an agency could go and basically contract the use of that equipment. Or is this a certain piece of equipment that has to go through um, certain uh, qualifications, I guess, to be used um, for evidence uh, evidence gathering? Um, example, like using a uh, you know a breathalyzer, right? Those things have to be certified and checked on a regular basis before they can be used. Um, is a is something like a laser scanner like that, or is it possible that a um, an agency has a local engineering firm um, that they could go to and be like, hey, contractually when we need to, can we borrow this thing from you for a day to use it?
1: Yeah, a lot of engineering firms have it. There's also freelance laser scanner people out there because of this technology and Leica and Faro both have annual requirements for calibration of their equipment that you have to do for them to say that it is certified. So if you are a smaller agency that maybe has a time, reach out to local engineering firms, reach out to, you know, if you reach out to Leica or Faro, they know who their, their consumers are people that have their product in your local area, and they can give you a list. We've been reached out to, um, not laboratory to come in and do laser scanning for, um, a- attorneys that are representing people, or we haven't had done it directly for law enforcement yet, but, um, we could do that. Like I said, you, the biggest thing is, is knowing who those people are. You don't know until you know, know who they are, make those connections, build a relationship. And like I said, it can save you a whole lot of grief in the long run. But like I said, is laser scan, laser scan, laser scan. Like if you don't know who has one, find out who does and get it done.
0: Jason Avenue business idea. Um, <laughs> what we're going to do is um, we'll purchase a couple of them and we're just going to rent them out. So we'll get. So we'll be the resource, so that way, if an agency needs one, right, we'll be we'll just rent them out to people. I think that's <laughs> a fantastic business model. I don't know what that's going to cost me, but um, I think that uh, I think it's doable. So we should we should look at that. So uh, we'll have that conversation offline. All right. Um, <laughs> to go back to uh, to get out of the rabbit hole I've kind of dug for myself here with this conversation. The the overall software and platform that, that not has developed for this. Can you walk me through what that looks like? So if an agency is like, what is it that you got? Because we've talked a lot about data collection. Now we've talked about video, um, but what is that? What is the, what would be a case study on the use of this? Like, can you give me an example of for an agency where this is directly applicable? Can you walk me through an example of a case that's, that's clear to speak about? on this is what we were called in to do this is how we utilized it and this was the result of our actions
1: so the biggest case we we've talked recently and we've just published an engineering paper on it was we were involved in a a civil litigation in in the tony stewart um mr ward crash that happened in upstate new york it was a um they were doing a, a race, um, sprint car race around the track and everything. Mr. Ward was spun out by Mr. Stewart. And then ultimately, uh, Mr. Ward exited his vehicle. And there was a collision between Mr. Stewart's uh, sprint car and Mr. Ward. Um, what we did was we came in and we did some video analysis on that, that, um, there was only one video from the grandstand of the actual incident it was pretty far away. It moved around, but through taking a point cloud laser scan of the, the that area of the track and, also doing some additional uh, engineering work where we placed uh, exemplar sprint cars in there. We created a 3D model. And from that, we were able to rotate up into a top-down view of the, the, the crash and track everyone's path through the, their the that area of the track, how fast they were going. And ultimately, we showed that the collision, Mr. Ward didn't actually move down in the track, but Mr. Stewart's uh, sprint car did move up and ended up colliding with Mr. Ward. And so there's actually a s- small clip of that up on our, our website and everything. You can take a look at that. Um, there's published engineering papers about our process and how we went about that. Um, but ultimately, what, what brought that to our attention from our the agency that was in charge of this was a pretty rural uh, sheriff's department, you know, who had... Limited, you know, there was limited information on this case and everything, and it was a pretty high profile case in the United States. Um, and would would our analysis essentially affected the the ultimate criminal charges that weren't prosecuted in this case? And that's fine. You know, grand jury shows not to indict that's the process. But if we would, if they would have had our analysis on the front end, would that have changed things? And that's, that's the biggest case I can think out that is, that's publicly available. That's not in current litigation that we're working on. Um, that you can take a look at are the videos up on the internet. Like we're, we're about to release a, a more prolonged discussion about the process that we did that. And hopefully we'll be able to release that and then not to distant future. And it, like I said, it was pretty amazing how we were able to take that one video that was constantly moving and then show an overhead view and build this 3d model, show everyone's speed, the path they we were traveling because it it was actually a view like you would in a normal race. And we were able to take that top down view and show that, that path up and down the track and, all that stuff was admissible in evidence and everything. And, and like I said, it was a pretty interesting thing. And like I said, when you have a high profile case like that um, would you like to have that additional analysis done if you have limited visual evidence? And um, it was pretty profound. I thought there was some pretty, you know, big resolutions. Like I said, I'm, I just look at the numbers as an engineer but when you provide that to a lawyer you know law enforcement agencies they can use that that data and that information to decide if they have probable cause if not you know something beyond that th- that would li- lead to ultimate you know you know prosecution of that case and, and that's the biggest thing i have a law enforcement agencies is reach out to somebody if you have these things if you don't know what to do with the data that you have and everything and is there something we can do that with that and that's where those experts like not laboratory ourselves and and that's something we do is we we if you want to call us and talk and hey this is what we got can you do anything for us um we do that for free and so and there are other you know forensic engineering firms locally in different areas but we do we do it nationwide already so that's the biggest thing I tell law enforcement agencies. Give us, you know, give give somebody a call, like like not a laboratory, another expert, and see if we can help you. You know, we're just here to assist you. Cops are still doing are the ultimate guys that are doing all the work and the hard evidence, but maybe we can advise you on something that you maybe didn't think about or hadn't thought about, or combine some different you know skill sets like ours to, to yours to have an ultimate positive resolution for everybody.
0: Yeah, I love that absolutely. Um, If you're listening to this or watching it, what I'll do is. Uh, I'll tee up with uh, with Jason and we'll link whatever is the current available uh, access to that uh, to that case study. Um, so whether it's what's currently out there or when you get the, the new fancy produced piece together uh, overview of the, the whole case, um, whatever is readily available when you're watching this uh, or listening to this, that's what you'll get a link to, um, which is awesome. So. Jason, what is it right now, if I were to say, what what are you currently working on with with Not Labs? Is there kind of a a front site focus for you guys right now when it comes to the law enforcement space, or is it primarily still heavy on the accident reconstruction side of things, and you're kind of just assisting law enforcement as needed?
1: Right now, our big push is to make sure this technology is is known about, and we're spending a lot of time doing presentations we're really trying to get ourselves out there in the national conference circuit. And so that way we can present of like what we're doing, um, make law enforcement know that this, this technology is out there, that the skill sets of out there um, long-term our, our hope at some point is to partner with law enforcement agencies and, and make them more skilled. that they, they, they know that this stuff's going out there. You know, if you don't have somebody in your department figure out, you know, how you can best address these issues. We'd love to do training at some point we're not quite set up to do that right now so right now the biggest thing we do is that the, we call them roundtables. but if you got a case on your on your plate and you're like this is what we got you know can you know what what are you guys thinking about it that's we have we're a small enough uh, company that we we still have that customer service level that you know we're you're going to reach out and you're going to talk to me you're going to maybe talk to a marketing guy who just knows a little bit more about like what our schedule is and everything but we'll, we'll give you advisement. We do that. Like I said, we do that as free because we want law enforcement agencies to know, Hey, did you think about this? You know, did you get this, you know, what else do you have out there? You know, can we help you? Um, and right now we're our biggest thing is we're trying to partner with unions and the attorneys that help represent officers. And because in the civil litigation aspect and make sure they know about that stuff. Um, and right now it is, we're still stuck in the, we're not stuck but we're we're operating in in the expert realm because a lot of the stuff is still done manually um software is coming out there we're starting to see it coming onto the um in the industry and everything like that, but I still think it's in its adolescence at this point. And again, what, what is its admissibility in court? You know, and, and we're gonna run into those stuff when it comes into criminal court on its admissibility and, and and what it looks like in regards to that stuff and and when it comes to that software versus if you have an expert that's doing it who has a CV and a resume that shows you know your background and that stuff, you know, that stuff's gonna be a little bit more admissible as you work through those those court laws. But that's the biggest thing right now. Our ultimate goal is you know, to partner with law enforcement agencies. And we don't know what that looks like, but this, this has been, this, Digital media forensic is what we've branded this whole concept of something we're already doing in the accident reconstruction realm and more applications within law enforcement and other critical incidents. And we're just like I said, we're looking for law enforcement partners. We're looking for opportunities to partner out there. And, and we don't like I said, we're just open to those discussions, um, whether it's training and, and different things like that. Like that's why you know, we've reached out to you, Adam, is is that you have a network that we uh, we're, we, we're, we're engineers. We're not, we're, you know, other than myself, you know, there's nobody really at our company that has law enforcement experience. We do have some consultants, but that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to push this work set, the skill set that's already being utilized in the engineering realm and the forensic engineering realm into law enforcement, into that, that aspect of it. So they're aware of the technology. They are aware of the, the, the skills are and the possibilities of, of this technology as well. And how do we best apply it within law enforcement and, and in the public sector as well?
0: Yeah, well, I know we're excited at ILET to bring not on as, as, a, as a resource for everybody who's part of ILET right now and agencies and individuals alike and, and investigators, right? Because there's going to be a lot of them out there that are like, ah, oh, I got I to gotta make a phone call. Um, and if you are watching this and you want to get a hold of Not Labs, um, it's www.knottlab.com com. You can check them out at notlab.com and you can get in touch with Jason or anybody else on their team. Um, If you need to have a phone call or discussion, follow up from this episode with them. So uh, make sure to do that. Jason, brother, thank you so much for taking the time and and doing this podcast with you, man. I know it was a little bit of a work to get here. We had some few, uh, uh, a few scheduling things to work through, but I appreciate you taking the time and doing this with me, brother.
1: No, thank you so much, Adam. I appreciate what you do. Um, I'm personally passionate about training in law enforcement and making sure that the all the c- enforcement agencies have the training they need and the skill sets um i was lucky enough to work at a department that was pretty training heavy but um that's the ultimate goal making sure everybody knows that this stuff's out there um and get that information and that 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 knowledge out to the the beat cops investigators command staff whoever needs to have it so that way They have the best tools in their tool belt, you know, go along with everything else they're carrying on their body to to be the best law enforcement uh, officers they possibly can and provide the public the best services they can. So thank you for what you guys do. Thank what you're doing at a national level. I think really it's this this is the next pivotal push in law enforcement is is to make this this available for everybody throughout the the world and nationally in every country out there is to just so everybody has access to it. So I appreciate you.
0: Absolutely, brother. Looking forward to working with you guys. We'll talk soon. All Stay right. safe.
1: Aloha, man. Take it easy.
0: Join the ILET network now. Go to That's ILET.network. That's I L E T.network. Produced and distributed by The Sound Off Media Company.